Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. What God's been putting on my heart and what I want to share with you, there's two main things. The first one has to do with unwavering faith. And it's about God's expectation that we don't doubt His goodness, that we don't doubt His faithfulness, and that we don't doubt His power. That's the expectation. The second thing has to do with how trials in our lives, they tend to be the things that will cause us to doubt His goodness, His faithfulness, and His power. Those are the two things that that I want to be sharing with you tonight. And I want to just say that we we need to understand that God, He actually designs trials in our lives in order to do the first thing, which is to glorify Himself, and the second thing, which is to sanctify us. He actually does design trials in our lives. And I'm going to show you through the Scripture how that has happened. And I want to tell you, too, that the, the first reason is for His glory, and the second reason for our, is for our sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author, he's been encouraging these believing Jews to hold fast to their faith, to focus on Jesus, because they've been suffering. They've been going through persecution. They've been going through trials. They've been going through difficulties. And the author is telling, focus on Jesus. He's better than everything. He's superior to it all. All the different uh, religious systems, all the old ways of approaching God, Jesus is better than all of these. Up to this point, the author has just been drawing their focus on Jesus. And he's also been calling them to be the church that he's called them to be. Guys, um... I'll listen to a lot of messages from preachers in the United States and, and I've, been, I've listened to some of the really popular guys that a lot of people are listening to and I hear, um, I think this is one of the reasons God's put this message on my heart is because I'm hearing this message here in the United States and it seems to be like half of the message and it's kind of like this. What I'm hearing a lot of is how God is going to get you through your trial. Focus on the Lord and He's going to get you through your trial. Of course he is. This is true. And we need to hear this and we need to be reminded of this. God's going to, you're going to overcome this thing. You're going to get through it. You're going to level up. You're going to move forward. And this is an important message to hear. But, the, but what I'm not hearing is the other part of that message. And, and they're leaving that other part off, which is we have to be the church now. Now we have to go out into the world and we have to impact the world. God didn't just get you through that trial in order just for you to feel better about yourself and to, you know, continue on. No, it's to actually to use you in a powerful way for his kingdom. And so that's one of the reasons I think God's been putting this on my heart is that we as the church, we have this huge responsibility towards one another to stir each other up for love and good works to remind each other that God's good, He's faithfulness, He's powerful, and yes, we're going to get through this trial, and then let's go out and be used by God. So the the author of of the book of Hebrews, he's been calling them to be that church in a hostile culture, and that's the relevant part for us. We live in a hostile culture in the United States, don't we? 
I think in the United States, the culture towards true Christians is much more hostile than in Brazil, where I am at. I don't think I could do the kind of ministry, uh, like a park ministry in the United States. I think I would be pelted with eggs and tomatoes and whatnot. But in Brazil, this is not the case yet. Brazil's not far behind the United States in terms of just ungodliness and people that refuse to revere God. The United States here is, we, we have a culture that's hostile towards true Christians. We don't like that. I mean, I don't, I don't enjoy having hostility from the culture. But, but God's called us to be separate from the world. He's called us to make an impact in the world. And we have to maintain the truth. We don't get to compromise on the parts that the culture doesn't like in order for us to be more liked by them. Because the thing is this. Jesus said that we were going to have this problem. This isn't a surprise to the Lord. To us, we don't like it. We're like, when? In the United States, we've been in this godly country for so long, and now there's persecution coming. Well, look, do, do a little church history. The church has not been welcomed by many cultures. I mean, it's normal for the church to suffer persecution. Jesus said it in John chapter 15. He said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. You wouldn't be in a hostile culture if you're of the world. But Jesus said, yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Jesus went on to say, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Second Timothy, Paul wrote, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. We can't be surprised when we're persecuted. We can't be surprised by that. So we know that persecution is going to come, but then on the other side, there's just trials in our lives. Aside from the persecution, there's, this life is difficult. Obviously, I don't need to tell you this. You already know these things. These trials can be massive and they can be, just rock us to the core. And when we go through these trials and we go through these, these huge storms in our lives, oftentimes we're going to be tempted to doubt God. And I've found that the closer I get to God, the closer I walk with God, I'm thinking about God, my prayer life, I'm always praying to God, I'm, I'm depending on Him. And, and so when a trial comes, immediately I blame Him. I'm like, God, why did you do that to me? I think as a younger believer, I was slower to blame God. I'm, and I'm not suggesting that you do this. this isn't, it's just the problem I've had. By the way, this is a good time for me to give the disclaimer about the unwavering faith thing, which I'm going to be talking a lot about. I'm not saying this from this place of spiritual pride where I'm, I'm like the giant, where I don't doubt God. That's the opposite and that's why God's put this message on my heart that, that we don't get to doubt his goodness. We don't get to doubt his power or his faithfulness. I'm not saying it from a place of spiritual pride. I'm saying it from a person who's, who, who is tempted majorly to do that. I need the church to come alongside me and remind me God is good and he is powerful and he is faithful. What I don't need is for the church to come along me, alongside me and say, Kyle, dude, I doubt God too all the time. Don't worry about it. That's the last thing I need to hear. Please don't do that to people. Don't come alongside them and tell them it's okay. We all do it. Don't worry about it. That's not what we need to hear. Because the expectation is extremely high for us. And we're going to see that here in a moment. 
It's not coming from a place of spiritual pride. It's coming from a person who knows that, that when I get into a trial and when difficulties come, the first place I go to is, to is God and I ask him, why did you do this to me? I know you're good, but this doesn't seem good to me right now. So there is a fourth option. So we have these three options of when we are in a trial that I'm going to doubt God's goodness, I'm going to doubt his faithfulness, I'm going to doubt his power. There is a fourth option, and it is just that I'm going to deny God altogether. And it's not a valid option. It's an error. And, and let me explain what I mean to you. Because I'm sure you've noticed this, that when, you see, when there's a massive tragedy, you'll have those people that are saying, how could you believe in God when this thing happened? This is a terrible tragedy. How could you possibly believe that there's a God? And so there will be this temptation to doubt that in just in complete in his existence when there's a tragedy, when there's a massive trial. It's not a valid option, and here's why. In Romans chapter 1, Paul explains how God has revealed himself to all mankind so that there's no excuse. How did he do that? We have the earth, we have the sun, we have the moon, we have the stars, we have the creation. And, and the creation declares God's glory. So we don't get to say, I don't believe in God. We don't get to do that because according to scripture, God's revealed himself through his creation in such a way that none of us will be able to stand before God and say there wasn't any evidence. I didn't know. And what Romans chapter one says is that we do know, but we've suppressed the truth. We've suppressed it because what could be known about God, it's manifest. It, he's made it known to them, but we suppress the truth. So that option of denying God, it's, it's not possible. I like how Rabbi, Rabbi Zacharias puts it. He said, you know, to go to the extreme of atheism, which is a huge extreme, to go to the extreme of atheism, it's, it's untenable. You can't actually stay there. And it's really easy to get a person from atheism to agnostic. Atheism says, there's no such thing as God. I know it. Agnostic just says, I just don't know anything, okay? So get off my back. The atheist says... I know there's no God. And the funny thing is, in order to know there's no God, you have to know everything. And the way Ravi Zacharias puts it is, you as an atheist are saying, I am an all-knowing being that knows there's no such thing as an all-knowing being. This is ridiculous. I mean, imagine all the information in the universe, that's 100% of, of the information there is. You would have to know it all to know that there's no God, right? That makes sense? How much do we know? We know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a little bitty percentage of all the information in the universe. But I know there's no God. That's crazy. It's crazy. You're, you're, you're a person who says, I know everything, and there is no such thing as a being that knows everything. It doesn't work. We don't get to use that option. Psalm 19 is beautiful. Let me read it to you. It says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth. Their words to all the world. We, we're never, there's no one that's going to get to stand there before God and say, I never believed that there was truly a God. Because deep down in their heart they know it. They know God exists. I don't ever have to, convince someone God exists. I know that they've just suppressed the truth. But the other three options of I'm going to doubt his goodness or his faithfulness or his power, those are things that we within the church, we tend to play with. 
And, and what we'll do is when we're in the middle of a trial, we're going to look around at other people and we're going to say, well, that guy does it and, and she does it too. And so it seems like the church tends to doubt sometimes. And so I think it's okay. I think we'll get a pass. I think God's going to be like, yeah, you know, everybody kind of doubts me from time to time. It's okay. But the fact is we don't get a pass. We don't get permission. And we actually need to stop excusing one another when we do come to that point of doubt. What we need to do is, like I said, come alongside our brothers and sisters. And we need to remind them of the goodness and the faithfulness and the power of God. So God hasn't just said, okay, you know, from a negative sense, don't doubt God, okay. But he's equipped us for this, okay. There's three massive tools that he's given us in order to to help us when we're tempted to doubt him. And those three tools are this, and this isn't the exhaustive list, but he's given us himself, the Holy Spirit living in us. God lives in us as believers in Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good tool. I mean, God lives in us. I don't know if I learned this from Pastor Ed, but I remember someone teaching on this. He was saying, you know, imagine all your heroes in the Bible uh, and, and you get to heaven and you get to go and talk to the he- your hero. You get to go and talk to David or you want to go and talk to Peter or whatever. And you get to, to David and you're like, man, David, what was it like? Tell me. I want to know the stories about how God worked in your life. And David's going to be like, me? What was it like for you? You had the Holy Spirit living in you the whole time. And we're going to be like, oh yeah, I guess that was pretty cool. And David's going to be like, pretty cool? What's wrong with you? You had God living. That's a tool. We have God living in us. The second thing we have is his word. We have the word of God. Man, we have God's living and perfect word that we can go to. And the third thing we have is the church, us. This responsibility that we have with one another is huge. We have this massive responsibility towards one another, and that's what Hebrews is talking about. And that's what I want to look at really quick. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Would you guys read these with me? Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Verse 19 in Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. He's saying, in light of the fact that we have this new approach to God, then we can draw near to God on the basis of his grace through our faith. Because of the blood of Christ, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we get to draw near to God. This is the new way. And guys, this is the key to it all. And this is where it all has to start. So on a weekly basis, as Krista shared with you, we're on the streets in Billing. And we're in one of the worst places that you would want to be. You wouldn't want to be there. And we go there at night, the the worst time to be there. And we're meeting with people who are in serious trouble. I mean, imagine your life, how difficult it has to be. Imagine the circumstances that would get you to a point 
where at age 14, you're selling your body on the streets in an extremely dangerous place, and you really don't know whether or not the next car that picks you up is going to be the end of you. Imagine the, the, the life that has led to that. Imagine the abuses that have been suffered, the addictions, and, and all of these different things, and we're standing in front of them, and we're standing and talking to a person that is in serious trouble. And, and we could be tempted to think, man, how am I going to minister to this person when, when their dad started abusing them at the age of five and, and they got addicted to drugs at the age of seven and they're here selling their bodies. How in the world am I supposed to address these things? And God's always shown us the same thing. I'll tell you how to address it. You start with me. It's the blood of Christ. It's what I've done for them. It's the gospel. That's how you address it. And don't ever forget it. God's made it so clear to us that we're not there to, to address all those other problems. However, we do. God's, I mean, as best we can, God's equipping us to help these people more in a, in a, in a physical way and, and, and helping these different needs in terms of counseling and all that stuff. But the key to it all is what have they done with Christ? And, and that's the thing that, that the people don't quite understand. So when we talk to people about a prostitution ministry, the world is... They love it for, for whatever reason. Human trafficking is a huge deal, right? We hear a lot about it. But it, our focus isn't just to get them off the street. Our focus is to make sure we tell them the gospel. That's the focus. And the world is like, wait, what? No, you got to deal with all... No, you don't. This is the thing. This is the key to it all. This is the most crucial need that that person has. I, I, I know it. Isn't that crazy to imagine? That person who's selling their bodies on the street that has this massive trauma behind them, their most crucial need is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament times, because remember this, this book of Hebrews, he's dealing with these believing Jews and, I, and probably some non-Jews in there as well, but in the Old Testament times, in order to draw near to God, there was a, a process, there was a very specific way of doing it. And there was a, one particular time per year, the Day of Atonement, and one particular person, the high priest, who had to go through these rituals. He had to bathe in a certain way, and he had to put on certain clothes, and he had to sacrifice in a certain way. And then he could approach God. But do you think it was a bold approach? I mean, I, I think it would have been a terrifying approach to, to approach the holiest of holies knowing that I had to do all these things right and, and, and it's all better be correct. And, I, and I'm going to approach God and I'm not going to do it very boldly because I've had to do all those things. Well, the writer of Hebrews is talking about this new way that we approach God. It's not one person does it for me. It's not once per year. It's I can approach God any moment I want to and I can approach him with boldness. Why? Because it's not based on my works. I, it's not based on what I did. It's based on what Jesus Christ did for me. So because of that, I can approach God with boldness. And that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to approach him boldly. And so the, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of this fact, let us draw near to God with full assurance. That a full assurance, man, if, if, if the full assurance part is based on my work, I'll never have full assurance. That full assurance is based on what Jesus Christ did for me. When we talk to the people on the streets and when we share the gospel with people, 
When I say that their most crucial need is Jesus Christ, I, I know it for a fact. Because these people are under the wrath of God. They're unreconciled with God and they're still dead in their sins. There was um, one particular story I want to share with you guys. There were uh, three people that were walking by as I was preaching. And, and I'm, as I'm preaching in the amphitheater in the park, oftentimes there's all these crazy distractions. We will literally have a marching band march up while I'm preaching and they will stop in the middle of the amphitheater and they will just play their song. One time they sang Yankee Doodle Dandy. This is Billing Brazil, and I know they were messing with me. I'm not joking. It was Yankee Doodle Dandy, and I'm thinking, yeah, how did you guys even know that song? And it's a marching band, and they would come up, and they'd stop right next to me, and the guy with the big drum, he would stop right next to me, and it's like, boom, boom, right next to my head. And it's just madness in the park. It, and, and we'll stop, and we'll pray, and then the marching band will walk away, and we'll get up, and we'll continue. It's just... That's how the weekly outreach is. And, and so this one day, these three walked by me, and they started kind of yelling at me. And that happens. It's normal. And I, and I looked right at them, and I kept preaching. And they were like, whoa, this guy's weird. This is different. And they sat down, and they listened to the whole message. They got up, and they were talking to me afterwards. They were in bad shape. One of them, um, she had no teeth. She'd been living on the streets, obviously, for a long time. She's covered in scars on her face, on her arms, everywhere. She was in bad shape. And, and God really was calling me to really push these three people. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to them about the gospel, and I'm explaining it to them very clearly, and I, I'm finished. And I, t I ask him, okay, so you know the gospel. So if you were to die tomorrow, what's going to happen to you? And two of them said, I don't know. And the other one said, I'll go straight to hell. And I said, okay, good. One of you understands the gospel. The other two, you don't understand. So let me try this one more time. And so I started explaining the gospel again. Because I don't know is not a proper response. It's either I'm going straight to hell or I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. It's one or the other. I don't know. You know, the gospel is clear. And so I explained it to him again. And, and this one the one woman that was covered in scars, she didn't have any teeth. Um, for some reason, I was just really pushing her. And I'm not normally like this. I'm not like, really, you got to listen to what I'm saying, please. And you got to, will you believe? Will you, will you repent right now and turn from this life and, and believe in Jesus right now? And will you just leave that life behind and will you follow him? Because you've heard the gospel. You know it's not about your works. You know that you can believe in him right now. You know this. Will you do it, please? And she's like, no. And I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not, I'm not saving anybody. I know this, so it's not like, it's on my, I, I did my part. I shared the gospel with her. Well, I found out two weeks later, we were, we were on the street again, and we ran into her friend. It was a, it's a young boy, but he's dressed as a girl. And when I was talking to him in the park, he said his name was Stephanie. And after I was done talking to him, I'm like, what's your name? And he's like, it's Lucas. And, and we had a moment, and we, and we connected, and, and he heard the gospel. Well, I, we saw Lucas again when we were doing our outreach. And Lucas gets up and he's like, I know you. And I'm like, I know you. And he goes, that girl you talked to, she's dead. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I can believe it. I, these people are living, you know, they're on the edge all the time. And so I do know that the most critical need is the gospel. I do know it. And that's what God's called us. It's not, it's not, this is what Jesus has told us to do. 
This isn't something new that I found. This is the Great Commission. We're called to go out and make disciples of all nations. We're called to go and preach the gospel to every creature. So we can boldly draw near to God with full assurance because it's what Christ did. That's what the Hebrew writer is talking about in those opening verses there in, in verse 19 and 20. And he says, in light of this, this is the, this is the part that really touches my heart. In light of all these things, in light of the blood of Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that we're forgiven because of that, in light of those things, let us draw near to God. In light of those things, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without what? Without wavering. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's the expectation, unwavering faith. You guys, um, there's these two examples that I want to share with you where, where I thought that wavering faith should kind of be okay. The first one's in, um, it's in Matthew chapter 8. What was happening in Matthew chapter 8 is that Jesus had commanded his disciples that we were going to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples get in the boat. Jesus is sleeping. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm happening. And the disciples are certain that they're going to die. And they wake up Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it, it seems to say that the timeline of events is this. In the other two Gospels, in, in Luke and in um, Mark, it doesn't quite say how the timeline of events went chronologically. And here's what I mean. When, when the disciples woke Jesus up and said, we're going to die, do something, help us. Jesus said, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Now in Matthew's Gospel, he said it, I believe, while the storm was still happening and the boat's still sinking. So imagine... You're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a massive storm. You're sinking and you're certain you're about to die. And you wake up Jesus. And while this is going on and you're hanging on and, and Jesus is like, why are you afraid? You have little faith. And you're like, why are we afraid? Look at what's happening. We're going to die. Of course I'm afraid. And then he rebukes the storm and everything's still. That's what Matthew's gospel says. He, he asks the disciples, why are you afraid? A little, you have little faith. And then he rebuked the storm. I think that's amazing. In, in that situation, I figured Jesus would kind of give him a pass. Um, I know that Jesus commanded us to go to the other side. And if Jesus commands something, it's going to happen, right? Well, it doesn't seem like it because we're sinking and we're about to die. So aren't we allowed a little bit of doubt? Absolutely not. The second one is in Matthew chapter 14. And it's one of my favorite stories. And it's when Jesus is walking across the water and Peter's like, Lord, if it's you, call me out on the water. And that was the verse, by the way, that, that got me to take the biggest step of faith, I felt like, that got us to take the biggest step of faith, which was to plant that church in Billing. Because at the time, I didn't know if God was calling me to, to pastor a church and me to plant a church. Because we were still at the school at that time. And um, I started praying this prayer. I was like, Lord, if it's you... You have to call me because I'm, I'm not about to go and try to plant a church if it's just me. 
that would be a disaster. I don't want to do that. But if it's you, I'll go. And I was praying this, Lord, if it's you, I'll go. Lord, if it's you, I'll go. And I'm studying through Matthew. I'm teaching through Matthew at our church at the time. And I get to Matthew chapter 14, and Peter prays the same prayer that I was praying, like almost word for word. Lord, if it's you, call me out. And I was like, wow, answer to prayer. Thank you, Lord. But then God warned me, but don't doubt. So you know the story. Peter calls on the Lord. Lord, call me out on the water. And Jesus says, Peter, what are you talking about? Stay in the boat. What's wrong with you? Just go to the... No. The Lord says, okay, come. You want to come? I like how this whole thing happened. Jesus didn't come up there and say, Peter, get out of the boat. Come walk on water. It's going to be terrifying, but just do it. No, that's not how it happened either. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call me to come. And Jesus, Peter got out of the water. He started to walk on water in a storm. Impossible, right? And then he takes his, fo- takes his focus away from the Lord and he sinks. And the Lord saves him. And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, I figure you could get a pass at that moment for doubting God. Because when I look at that story, I'm like, if I were Peter, I'm like, what? What? I was walking on water and it's a storm. This is impossible. Of course I'm going to doubt. And, you know, I used to like joke around thinking, you know, imagine Jesus in this moment and, and Jesus reaches in. They're like, Peter, you should have seen your face. This was hilarious, man. Of course you're going to doubt. This is impossible. It's crazy. It wasn't a joke though. And I really believe that when, when the Lord reaches down and he pulls Peter up out of the water, I believe that he said this with a broken heart. Why did you doubt you have little faith. There, there was no past. There was no, it's okay to doubt me. It's not okay. I think that, um, that, that we really need to pay attention to this warning. And that warning that God gave to me when, when he was calling us to plant this church, it was, it's very important that I had that warning because every time I've wanted to quit, I've had to remember back to that and say, okay, no, there is no doubt. I don't have room for it. I don't get to doubt. There, we don't have that excuse. The, the other part of this message that I want to share as we're wrapping up, it has to do with what I told you about how God will design trials in order for him to be glorified first and for us to be sanctified. The reason I keep putting that in order because it's the right order. And sometimes we get the order wrong and we tend to think, and I think that a lot of the preaching that is talking about, you know, you getting over the trial and it's you, 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 we start to put ourselves in the first place. Like God's going to put me in a trial for my sanctification. Well, he will, true, but first it's for his glory. And that's got to be first. It, do, it doesn't get, go second. It's got to be first. In John chapter 9, would you guys turn there with me? And let's read the first three verses of John 9. It says, now as Jesus passed by, I'll give you a minute to get there, sorry. John 9, 1 through 3. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. Now, I imagine that it's very difficult to be blind. I don't know it myself. I've never experienced it but I think it was probably even more difficult to be blind in the first century. 
when you were completely dependent on the charity of other people and if you didn't have that, you would probably die. This guy was a beggar and he was born blind. And Jesus, his disciples ask him, okay, Lord, why was this man born blind? Was it some kind of sin? Was that the problem? Jesus says, no, it's not that. It's so that I would be glorified. See, this, is a, this was designed for Jesus' glorification because the Pharisees at the time were teaching, look, somebody that was blind after they had already seen, maybe, you know, that, that's, that, that's heard of that they could see again. But somebody that was born blind, it's unheard of for them to see again. But when Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. That's what the Pharisees were teaching at the time. And so... Here comes Jesus, and there's a man born blind. Jesus heals him, and whoa, this is only Messiah could do this. This was a designed moment. This was a designed trial, and that's a hard trial. This guy lived his whole life as a blind person, and then Jesus comes along and he heals him. That was first for the glory of God, and secondly for, for him, for his sanctification. The other one is in John 11. Would you turn there with me? We'll read verses 1 through 4. This is Jesus and Lazarus, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness, it's not unto death, but what? For the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. And when Jesus heard that, that Lazarus was sick, he didn't immediately heal Lazarus. Instead, he waited for four days after Lazarus was dead. That's a pretty big trial. I mean, you get so sick and then you die. I mean, that, that's like the worst kind of trial. I mean, that, well, not for us believers. That's also the best kind of trial. But it doesn't get much worse than that when you're so sick that you die. And that's it. Well, this was designed by God so that Jesus would stand there four days later and, and they would open the tomb and Jesus would say, Lazarus, come forth, and he would be risen from the grave for the glory of God, for Jesus' glory first. And I think Lazarus was probably thankful as well and for his sanctification second. Knowing that God does design trials in our lives for His glory and for our sanctification, it's, it's impactful, I think. I think it'll help us to endure our trials, and I think it'll help us to not doubt God's goodness, to not doubt His power, to not doubt His faithfulness. And as a church, we have that responsibility to come alongside our brothers and sisters and to remind each other when we forget, because I forget. I forget quickly. I know that um, that I've told you a number of times that uh, that one crucial thing is do you know Jesus Christ? And I want to take a moment and I want to pray. And I also want to ask those of you here that, that don't know Christ. And what I mean by that? I mean, if you're one of those people that if I were to say, okay, this is the gospel. Let me give, give you the elements of the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus came he died for your sins, and then he rose from the grave. Those are like the three main elements boiled down of the gospel. He died for your sins because your sin, you're, you're condemned because of your sin. Guys, um, I think this illustration, is very, this illustration is very helpful. 
You know uh, Lady Justice with the blindfold and the scales? Do you know what those scales are measuring? A lot of people think that, that, that when they die, they're going to go to heaven and God's got this massive scales and it's going to weigh my good works versus my bad works and if my good weigh the bad, I get in. You guys know that that's not what those scales actually represent? Do you know what those, those scales are doing? The scales of justice are there to measure the evidence of whether you're guilty or innocent. That's what they're measuring. So on one side is the evidence for your guilt. The other side is the evidence for your, for your innocence. Did you or did you not commit the crime? That's what those scales are measuring. That, that question's been answered for each and every one of us. You have committed the crime. You are guilty. Every one of us are guilty. And, and so this idea that God's going to outweigh my good and my bad, that, that's not even what the scales of justice are for. They're just to measure your guilt or innocence. Guess what? You're guilty. You already know it. You're guilty. And the amazing thing is Jesus died for your sins. He took the punishment because the wages of sin is death. That's the, po- that's the cost. It always was. It always will be. Somebody had to die. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice and he died for you. So what do I do about that? I have to believe it by faith. That's what I do. So when I ask you, if you're in that place where you don't know Jesus Christ, where if you were to die tomorrow, you don't know where you're going to go, that's not, an op- that's not an answer. It's not an option for you. I don't know. It's I'm going to be in heaven with my Lord or I'm going straight to hell the moment I die. So I want to pray and I want to ask any of you guys that are here that don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that don't know what's going to happen to you if you were to die tomorrow, because you're not promised tomorrow. You don't know if you'll be here tomorrow. So I want to ask you to come forward. If God's been touching your heart, if he's been drawing you to himself during this time, I just want to ask you as we're praying, would you come forward so that we can pray with you? I know that it's a very difficult thing to do. By the way, I just want to mention one last thing. I hope I'm not really late. But um, in this church, when I was first saved, every week I got saved here, which is ridiculous. But every week I would, I, I would raise my hand and I got saved. So if they were keeping count, your count's off because I got saved like 100 times here. The, the thing was is I would get saved and then I would go and I would sin and I would come back and think I got to get saved again. It's not how it works. When I repent from my sin, when I turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, I'm forgiven. So what I'd like to do is let's pray. If God's drawing you to himself, would you please come up here and let's pray together? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this time. God, I thank you for what you've done for us, that you came to this earth, that you died for our sins and you rose from the grave. God in the flesh did this for us, Jesus And by faith in this message, I can be saved. By faith in what you've done, I'm saved. Your word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all guilty. We all stand condemned before you. But your word says that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And your word says that if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I'll be saved. So Lord, I, I just pray for the people that are here. If, if there's anybody here that knows that they're not reconciled with God, I want to ask them to come forward right now and let's pray together. So if there's anybody out there, you don't know what's going to happen to you when you die, come forward. 
And let's pray. Because you, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the most important need that you have among, above everything else, including what people are going to think of you if you come forward, the most important crucial need that you have is to be reconciled with Jesus Christ. So if that's you and you're here in this place and you know that you're not right with God, come forward, please. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much that, that you're, you have grace towards us, that when we fail, you forgive us. But God, I, I know also that you want us to be reconciled to you, and I know that you want us to be used by you to further your kingdom. So as the church, God, please stir us up to do these works. Please stir us up to glorify you. Please stir us up, God, to, to turn other people to you, to point other people to you. And Lord, if there's somebody in here that didn't want to walk up, God, I just, I, I want them to pray a prayer like this. If they're, if they're truly repentant and they've heard this gospel and they believe, they can pray a prayer that's like this. God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've failed. I know that I've done everything that's wrong. But I want to be reconciled to you. And I know that you died for my sins. And I know that you rose from the grave and I believe it. And I want to turn from my sin and I want to follow you with the rest of my life. If you prayed that prayer and you truly believe it, you're saved. You're forgiven. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877 304 7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.